You're listening to the Party in My Plants podcast, and you're about to hear the true woo-hoo, boo-hoo, and woo-woo story of how I signed my first book deal of my dreams, and also how I rigged my high school yearbook superlatives. Scandalous. Welcome to the Party in My Plants podcast, where I make healthy living as fun as a party so you'll, you know, actually want to do it and then actually feel, look, and live your best. I'm your host, Talia Pollock. Now let's get this party started. This episode is enthusiastically sponsored by a product that couldn't possibly float my boat more, Four Sigmatic. My boat is so floated by Four Sigmatic's mushroom drinks that any more floating would turn my boat into an airplane because it's flying. Okay, so the first time I tried a packet of Four Sigmatic mushroom tea and a glass of hot water, I was muy skeptical because of this whole mushroom thing being really trendy right now, and I'm always reluctant to hop on trend trains. Wow, we're really covering all the modes of transportation here. But I drank those shrooms, and I felt truly awesome. It's hard to explain. I just felt way more awesome than I felt before I drank it. Since then, I consistently consume at least one type of shrooms a day, and it helps me know it's going to be bright, 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 sunshiny day, even when it's rainy and gray, because I am telling you these mushrooms are magic. Although they don't make me hallucinate in a bathtub like my ex-boyfriend's famous magic mushroom experience, which in hindsight, he seemed way too proud of. But nobody's hallucinating the magical effects of these shrooms, okay? They are ultra-scientifically proven to boost immunity and gut health. Yes, please, and thank you. And the four different shrooms that Four Sigmatic uses most, hence the four in Four Sigmatic, wink, wink, they all do different epic things for your bod. Reishi helps you relax. Cordyceps give you a non-caffeinated energy for sports and stuff. Lion's mane, which does not come from a lion's mane, boosts your brain. And chaga is a mega charge for your immune system. I weave all four of those separate mushrooms into my life by way of the teas. That's what I'm talking about here, people, are mushroom teas that you dissolve in a packet of hot water and haya. But I also fancy myself some of their fancier shroom concoctions. They have this relaxing, thanks to the reishi hot cocoa that I pretty much make every night with almond milk. They have matcha powder, which is the only matcha I now use. They have these magic mushroom chai latte packets that you can add to water or almond milk for a hot or iced sweetest sippable treat. And I have to say, even though I don't drink coffee, Four Sigmatic is kind of famous for their multiple kinds of organic, much better for you coffee, even mocha mixes. So you can mocha chocolate. Okay, enough from me. I'm sorry. I just finished a mushroom matcha latte and I'm flying high. But because you listen to this podcast, thanks so much for doing that, by the way, you can save 15% off any and all Four Sigmatic shroomy stuff you'll want to buy off of their site, foursigmatic.com, using code PARTYINMYPLANTS. Or you can just go to Four Sigmatic, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com slash PARTYINMYPLANTS to automatically save that 15%, baby. Oh, by the way, Did I mention that I don't even really like eating mushrooms? Yeah, but now, thanks to Four Sigmatic, my body doesn't need to have shroom FOMO. Okay, again, hit up foursigmatic.com slash partyinmyplants to save 15% on this mega boat floating stuff that I always find stuffed into my pockets, purses, luggage, or my bra because I just can't get enough. 
I'm ooh out of office this week for a conference in sunny, humid, and air-conditioned Florida. So I am re-airing this dramatic story about what going for the goal can truly be like behind the scenes and in the heart. This episode first aired in April of 2018, a couple of weeks after I signed my book deal. And before I roll into this roller coaster of an episode, I want to interject here with a relevant little prologue. So you'll hear that getting my dream come true deal to write my book came after many years of essentially, and spoiler alert, not giving up with tons of woo-woo, boo-hoo, and finally, woo-hoo. But this conference I'm at right now in sunny, humid, and air-conditioned Florida is also the accumulation of aligning with a dream after many years of essentially, and spoiler alert, not giving up, with tons of woo-woo, boo-hoo, and finally, woo-hoo. This conference is my orientation for a college speakers bureau that I've been dying to get accepted into for five years, over which I enthusiastically applied and got rejected Uno, dos, trace times. Three times I got rejected. My journey to having the honor of being added onto the small roster of top motivational speakers with burning desires to educate and inspire students for success in college and beyond has looked and felt a lot, almost too much, like the story you're about to hear. And the six truths I share at the end of this sode were the exact same steps, the exact same steps that I leaned on to realize this other burning desire of mine. Although this time I also leaned on my community and my friends, which actually I did for my book too, so that should have been another truth, the seventh truth. My point is that A, if you're in college or you work for a college or you know someone who works at a college, hit me up because I'd love to speak there. And B, I believe that most, if not all, of big dreams coming true sounds a lot like this woo-woo, boo-hoo, and then woo-hoo of a story. So if you're in the middle of your roller coaster of a ride to realizing a burning desire, prepare yourself, stay seated at all times, make an awesome face into the roller coaster cam, and please try out the six truths I drop at the end of this chat. You got this. And I got to run to the airport. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Last month, I shared the glorious news that I did, in fact, sign a book deal with Avery, an imprint of a publisher you might have heard of called Penguin Random House. Now, if you saw that Instagram post or read my announcement newsletter or overheard me talking about it on the subway or in my sleep, you might just draw the conclusion that it was a boy meets girl. Girl loves boy. Boy and girl live happily ever after kind of story, except swap me for the boy and sub the book deal for the girl. But the truth is, to stay on this analogy, me solidifying such a dream book deal was more like boy thinks he might like girls. Boy has his first girl crush. Boy asks girl crush to the school dance. Girl crush says yes, and then they dance the appropriate arm's length apart in the middle school cafeteria to boys to men I'll make love to you. Girl likes a different boy the next week. Original boy is heartbroken and says he'll never like a girl again. Boy distracts himself for a few years, maybe teases girls to make a point that they suck. 
Then he likes a new girl and takes her to the high school Marriott Banquet Hall prom. Girl kisses him, and the summer they graduate, she gives him her flower, even though Rachel told Monica to stop calling it her flower, or no boy will ever want to give it to her. But then the girl goes to college and forgets about the boy, and the boy is heartbroken and basically gives up on girls and throws himself into his studies and his fraternity, but in reverse order of importance. And then years later, he remembers how much he loves girls and opens himself up one more time, this time being open to the potential heartbreak that might come with following his heart. This time not resisting the idea that he could get crushed and left all alone, sadder and lonelier than he was before. But he goes for it anyway because the potential of the happiness and joyful life with the girl is worth the risk of being alone. And then after a few more heartbreaks and lots of ups and downs and waiting, he finds his soulmate and they get married and then he has to write a book because he now has a deadline. Not sure why I put myself in the boy role of that story, but let's just roll with it. All this to say that the truthful tale of my book deal is anything but a straight, direct, easy line. It involved a lot of both woohoo and boohoo, plus a surprising amount of woo-woo, all of which I'm about to dive into. So if you pressed play on this episode thinking you'll get the step-by-step copy and paste formula for getting your own book deal, this probs isn't the perfect episode for you. But if you're open to hearing how achieving great goals is possible with more hustle, heartbreak, and some spiritual shiz sprinkled in, this episode might just do it for you. So this whole I want to be a writer thing didn't just start yesterday or last week or last year. It really started with my childhood. I've always wanted to be a writer. My mom's a writer. She actually was the head writer and editor of my local town newspaper growing up. She'd crank out like 14 articles a month about the latest and greatest library happenings, robotics club accomplishments, and I don't know, because like an asshole, I actually never read one of her 12,000 articles. (laughs) In second or third grade, my BFF and I started our own newspaper called School Tools because we were in school, but we were not tools. Maybe we were a little bit tools, but we were even too young to use tools, really. (laughs) Through middle school and high school, essays were what continually saved my grades. Tests were a no-go for me. But give me an essay and I'd be able to turn a C-plus in a class into an A-minus. Writing was so my jam that I actually hand-wrote my college essays exclusively in my family home's hot tub. Not sure why, but I still sometimes try to write in my bathtub. I really just need a better system. My senior year of high school, I was the yearbook editor, and I may or may not have rigged the superlatives, so my high school boyfriend won the same superlative as me, which was most likely to brighten your day. Duh. So we could pose together in a pic with smiling handmade matching t-shirts. Over the years, I became famous with boyfriends, friend friends, and family members for my long greeting cards and apology notes for what saved my relationships and witty AIM messages and profiles for what saved my cool girl social status. I chose my college solely based on their communications program. I went to college at Syracuse University's Newhouse School of Public Communications, Go Orange, as a magazine major. But in the spring of my freshman year, while I was sitting in a school lounge area, I saw a copy of our campus newspaper called The Daily Orange. Wow, plants have been in my life forever. And it was lying on the ground open to an article. The article was titled, Everyone becomes a doctor when I get sick. (laughs) And I GOL'd, giggled out loud, because that is just so true. And then I read the article. 
I proceeded to GOL more and nod my head in agreement while secretly wondering if the author somehow was tapping my brain because I felt like he was reading my mind. Or rather, I was reading him writing about reading my mind. Anyway, I looked at the byline of the piece and saw that this was called the humor column and had my life-altering epiphany that, wait, really? I could write universal thoughts and that's a thing? So I befriended the author who was my first comedy mentor, shout out and mad thanks to the marvelous Scott Spinelli, and I set a goal to get to write the Daily Orange's humor column the following year. I then spent the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college living on Nantucket, reading every David Sedaris and Chelsea Handler book I could get my hands on. And truthfully, at the time, all Chelsea had was, are you there, God? It's me, Chelsea. So I think I read that three times that summer. And I worked as a hostess at a white table restaurant on Nantucket and got in really big trouble on the reg because the whole time I would stand at the hostess stand handwriting humor columns about summer happenings. I submitted my humor columns to all of the Nantucket publications and got retweeted the Jack did by all of them. I submitted them again the next summer and same. Thanks, but no thanks, except not even a thanks. Just no. After one year of being a magazine major, I joined one of our school health magazines called What the Health. I know, best name ever. And I was an editor and writer and I wrote my first ever article called I Suffer from IBS because at the time I really was suffering from IBS. I also became a staff writer at the Daily Orange doing deep investigative reports on fraternity house renovations, the on-campus super rad roller hockey group, and a legendary campus bus driver whose feature article I wrote was titled Joyride with the headline reading, Rod Trask started driving buses after retirement. But now he is not stopping unless he's at your stop. But as life-affirming as those articles were, I was dying to switch my major from magazine journalism to television, radio, and film so I could learn to write more funny and do less fact-checking. Soon after incessant bugging, I earned my own pop culture humor column. I would see people reading it on the subway LOLing or GOLing, which would make my life have purpose. And then I would have people come up to me at fraternity parties and say, aren't you the column girl? And I ate up every second of it along with the pizza I would drunkenly eat up as well and then feel like crap. The summer between my sophomore and junior year, I scored a very competitive internship at College Humor, even though I did not know who Jake or Amir were. I got to write funny stuff all summer in Union Square like a big girl. It was a dream. The main woman I worked for, Sarah Snyder, was a head writer at SNL for the past two years. Jake and Amir are still Jake and Amir, and my buddy Dan Gerwich, who's a fellow Syracuse alum, is now a head writer at John Oliver. So yeah. I learned funny from some of the best and wrote a lot about the beach, such as in an article called Sex on the Beach, and another one I wrote called The Seven People You'll Find on the Beach. Nice. After that internship ended during my junior year, all the beach writing made sense because a month later I moved to LA and did my semester abroad there and I worked for Adam Sandler, even though my dream of dreams was to work for Conan since I've always wanted and still want a talk show. But sitcoms were cool, too. I worked on rules of engagement. Side note, this is when I impromptuly discovered plants and had my other life-altering huge big epiphany that I share in depth in episode zero, in which I tell my plant origin story. (laughs) 
So during my senior year back at Syracuse, I made Funny Reese's Parody Commercials, a documentary about stand-up, and I wrote a relationship humor column while in a relationship with the dude who eventually dumped me for a burger, as I tell in episode 23, and in all my old stand-up routines. I also did an independent study for credits in comedy writing with a professor called Dubin, who's famous for writing for hit sitcoms back in the day, as well as writing a standard happy birthday, eat cake, damn it, on every everyone's Facebook walls on their birthday. He literally writes it on every former student and everybody's Facebook walls. So I always write, happy birthday, eat gluten and refined sugar-free cake, damn it, on his Facebook wall just to stay on brand. My senior year, I was also the editor of the pop culture section of the Daily Orange. And one day we got a book in the mail to review. And on the cover, in between bright girly pink writing, was a girl with angel wings standing in the streets of New York City. And I looked at the cover and I scoffed, almost gags, and I thought I was way too cool for this shit. And I said, no, I'm not going to review this book. So I made my co-editor write the review and an article about the author's upcoming book talk at our school. And I kept seeing this woo-woo book on the shelves in our school bookstore where I would hang out frequently because I was in the health nut hermit phase and my only friends were books. But I'd always roll my eyes when I saw this book. As the universe would have it, though, when I got dumped for the burger weeks after graduating, the first thing I instinctively thought to do was buy that book. Because as the author of that book says, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. That book was called Add More Ink to Your Life by Gabby Bernstein, who way back in 2011 became my guru and my hero and career role model. And I read her book literally 50 times that summer and spent the next handful of years following her around like a groupie. I'd go to talks throughout Connecticut, would bring my dad, my mom, my sister. I'd go to Kripalu, New York City, wherever. Gabby's teachings have really helped me become who I am and get this book deal. Just some foreshadowing for you. Oh, and when she did her book talk at Syracuse in 2011, her friend and fellow Cuse grad, she's also a Cuse grad, Robin Euclid, who you might remember from episode 76, spoke with her at that event that I scoffed at. How nuts is life? It's nuts. Really nuts. So post-college, I followed my health passion and went to the Natural Gourmet Institute to get my culinary school degree stuff. And I did the Institute of Integrated Nutrition. And I started and abandoned a couple of random blogs along the way. One was called Laugh With Your Mouthful, and another one was called Smushed Bananas. Then I went back into stand-up and improv and did those for a couple of years while also working at B-Bar and then Liquiteria, juice bar here in New York. And then I got my job at David Letterman. I worked there for eight months and I gave myself an ultimatum. Comedy or health. Choose. I applied for an internship, not even a job, an internship at greatest, and did not get it, even though the girl I interviewed with was a fellow Syracuse grad. There are a lot of Syracuse peeps in the media, which hurt a greatest amount. And then I said, screw you, greatest. I'm starting party in my plants. And less than a year later, got a huge article published on Mind Body Green and again said, suck it, greatest. And my career sort of started because of that article, and it led people to find me on the interwebs. Looking back on it, everything I've done my entire life has had a through line of writing. Essays, articles, columns, stand-up, and then website copy, videos, Instagram captions, emails, this podcast episode, and books. I've been a book hoarder my entire life, never traveling on vacation without at least three physical, not digital, three physical books. Girls gotta have options. 
Growing up, my mom had this tagline, we will never say no to spending money on books in this family. So I've been collecting books my entire life. It used to be David Sedaris' books on fleek. Then it went to IBS books, then vegan books, then self-help books, then more planty cookbooks and business books. And now it's an equal distribution between self-improvement, cookbooks, health books, and humor books. I coincidentally just bought myself another bookshelf last week because I'm running out of space with my current setup. I have at least 300 books in my apartment as I speak. Okay, so let me reel it back in here to the current book deal, shall I? Keeping in mind that I always saw myself as a writer, mostly had jobs in the writing space, and was told my entire life by writers I looked up to like my mom, the peeps at College Humor, comedy writing mentors in college, and the guy that opened my eyes to humor writing in the first place, Scott Spinelli, who wrote that humor column I stumbled upon that day that forever changed the trajectory of my life, I was told that I too was a good writer. And I've always looked around my landscape of hundreds of books and my routine strolls through bookstores and said to myself, maybe someday I could be here. And I'd imagine myself walking up to my own book on the shelf and I'd feel the feeling of that being my book and that feeling was awesome. My four years growing pimp, party in my plants, the actual acronym is PIMP. These four years have been hard on my head and my heart. While I watched my cronies rapidly grow their Instagram followings and quantities of diehard fans, I felt like I was turning my wheels but getting nowhere. I kept trying to do things my way, do things differently, since my impetus for starting Party My Plants from the get-go was to blend humor and health, which I saw nobody else doing whatsoever. But even though I had many Mind Body Green articles go viral early on in my career, and even though I was churning out consistent cooking videos that I'd script out like I was writing an SNL skit and deliver with confidence and cojones, even despite all that, my following was barely growing. Saying I was frustrated would be an understatement, as would saying I've had occasional moments of giving up hope for achieving my big dreams. So, okay, this sets the stage a little bit. You heard my backstory and maybe way more of it than you wanted. Sorry. And you heard a little bit about my more recent frustrations, both of which are all a part of this book story. But if gun to my head, someone told me to pick a date that this whole book deal thing really started, I'd say June 18th, 2016. So one hot June 18th day in 2016, I was in the Berkshires in Massachusetts with Jesse, my fiance, and his family. And we were going for a walk in a little New England town. And while I was standing outside, leaning on an old brick building, waiting for Jesse's mom to do her routine, oh wait, let me just pee thing after we just paid the lunch bill and were on our way out of the restaurant, I turned on my phone and saw an email from an unknown person. And that email said, hi, hope you're well. Love your site. Recipes. Wanted to reach out and see if you've done a book or have thought about doing one. Thanks. Name. She didn't write name. I said a name, but, you know, I don't need to say the name. The grammar in that email was a little whack. There were caps in the wrong places. There was weird spacing. It came in on a Saturday and wasn't even addressed to me personally. Just high comma. So naturally, I filed the email in the sweet woman from probably Ohio or somewhere else who thinks I could write a book but is so kindly naive because, come on, I'm a nobody and only started my business two years ago and have like 5.29k followers on Instagram. And yeah, no, yeah, no, sweet though. And then I went back to my regularly scheduled Saturday on June 18, 2016 programming, which meant contemplating a midday ice cream, and didn't think of the email again. 
Nine days later, on Monday, June 27, 2016, I got another email, this time via the submission form on my website. And the email said, Wanted to touch base and first and foremost tell you I am obsessed with your blog slash site. Made the donuts this weekend. Delish. Would love to connect with you when you have time about possibility working together. Thanks. Name. And then at the bottom, she wrote, I work at a place that rhymes with Barper Schmollins in the publicity department, VP slash director of publicity. Flabbergasted is the only word I can use to describe what I felt in that moment. Because A, that's how I actually felt. And B, how often do you get to use the word flabbergasted? I immediately went back to the old email that I fully ignored and had filed in my sweet woman from probably Ohio who thinks I could write a book but is so kindly naive because I'm nobody and only started my biz two years ago and have like 5.29K followers on Instagram. And yeah, no, yeah, so sweet though in that Gmail folder. And I realized that I hadn't even read the outgoing email address on that one. And it too was from the same named woman at the place that rhymes with Barbara Schmollins. Still in my flabbergasted state of mind, I casually wrote her back the next day, playing it cool, you know, saying I'd love to connect. And we hopped on the phone on June 29th, 2016. Are you paying attention to these dates? They'll come in handy later on in the story. Okay, I'm lying. They absolutely won't. Unless you're an astrologer and want to email me and tell me what all these dates signify. I'm a tourist born on 42789 and will not ignore your emails even if the grammar is whack, Miss Astrologist. <laughs> Thanks. Anyway, this director of publicity and I spoke for like an hour the next day. She telling me that it's not her job to poach people for book deals and that she'd never done this before, but that she was at her sister-in-law's home and her sister-in-law had made some of my recipes and she'd eaten said recipes and loved them and then joined my newsletter and just loved my stuff and felt strongly that if I wrote a book, she could publicize the hell out of it and compared me to Chris Carr, one of my major inspirations, as well as Reed Runham, aka the pioneer woman, aka someone whose recipes couldn't be more opposite from mine, but career with her books upon books and a magazine and branded cooking products like pots and pans and spatulas and a TV show filmed in her house. And did I mention branded spatulas and measuring cups? I mean, talk about the dream. And all the while, I was pacing around my apartment, telling myself to play it cool and not reveal that I don't even have that many followers, thus I'm not good enough, and she probably is the wrong person. But I wanted to be the right person, so I just said, let's pull a Joey when he turned into Joseph to be a real legit processor at Chandler's office and turn into Talia, the real legit person totally qualified to achieve a dream she didn't think possible until like, I don't know, age... 37 and act like discussing writing a book with someone at a top publishing house is a totally normal Monday activity. So we have a call as great as you could imagine. Well, I don't know what you're imagining, but the call was as good as it could be. We ended with her asking me to put together a little thingy. That's not a direct quote. With some of my most popular recipes, the digital guides that I sell, and some other stuff. And she said she'd try to set up a meeting between me and an editor. So I dropped everything I was planning on doing that day, which at that early point in my business was probably crying while I compared myself to people with more followers on Instagram and subscribers on YouTube for three hours, followed by editing a YouTube video and wishing I had more emails in my inbox other than ones from my mom and newsletters I signed up for. I dropped it all to make this PDF packet thingy and sent it to her right away. Two weeks later, when I got no response to my very profesh PDF packet thingy, I followed up and got in, so sorry, been so busy, we'll look this weekend and get in touch early next week, kind of response. 21 days later, but I mean, who's counting? I 
I was counting. I was counting a lot. I got another email saying, I promise I haven't forgotten about you. I will definitely be in touch shortly. Now, this was in early August, if you're not good at math. 34 days later, this is 34 days after the 21 days, which was after the two weeks after our phone call. So 34 days later, I figured a follow-up email was appropriate. So I did just that. 69 more days of silence later, I wrote another follow-up email and another one exactly 88 days after that. In between all these desperate but coy follow-up emails were confusion, disappointment, and a lot of, duh, this obviously wasn't meant to happen. This was just way too good to be true. This kind of stuff doesn't happen to me. Who did I think I was? She must have realized what a big mistake she made right after a call, but felt bad telling little old me that I'm actually a loser and that she mistook me for someone else who probably posts more photos posing in front of brick walls with iced lattes looking casual AF. So I went on with my life, disappointed, confused, but also like what else could I do since clearly my blasé email follow-ups were just not the path to success for us. So I gave up and this became a painfully funny inside joke between Jesse and me where I'd be like, hey, maybe I should email her, just see what's up. And he'd laugh and I'd laugh so hard that I'd cry, but I actually was crying while simultaneously making laughing noises to try to confuse even myself. Okay, so that was in the April of 2017. To recap, the initial email and then phone call and dream dangling scenario was in June of 2016. So this was the spring after that. So that spring, I emceed the Good Fest in Philly, woo-woo, which is one of the most fun things I'd done in my life. I got to be so authentically me, put all my skills and talents and passions to work all at once and inspire, entertain, and connect with peeps IRL for hours. It was one of the greatest working days of my life thus far. And when it ended, I went into a sad place. Kind of like when you do drugs and you feel really high and then on the other side of the high is a really low low. I mean, I've never done drugs, but I did MC the Good Fest, so I totally get it. I just knew I wanted more of emceeing the Good Fest situations in my life. And I somehow, after some thought, put two and two together that the people who speak the most at events and on stages have books. And so if I wanted to be a person who speaks at more events and on stages, I should have a book. And clearly, previous experiences taught me that I wasn't going to have anyone want to publish my book since I was a nobody. So I should just quickly self-publish one. And all the peeps who book speakers at events and on stages would then just hire me and I'd be happy and successful and yay! So in May, just a couple of weeks after the good fast emceeing, I hired an author coach, hey Shannon Kaiser, and got to fast and intense and enthralling work of naming my book, writing my outline, figuring out which self-publisher I would go with, bringing an editor on board, hey Tracy, love ya, look at me using your real name this time, <laughs> as well as bringing an illustrator and photographer on board and even writing a couple thousand words of my book. And I had a marketing plan, a timeline, and tons of gusto that I was going to do this thing on my own, even though my dream of all dreams was to go with mainstream publishing and have a team of people working with me and holding me to deadlines, and I could get their help getting the book in barn and Noble and all those small bookstores I've loved walking through since I was a kid. But I guess self-publishing and having my book on Amazon would be cool too, I guess. But then in June, 
my mother-in-law's ovarian cancer took a really bad turn for the worst. And she moved into a hospital for a month and we visited her every day. And it was awful and emotional and heartbreaking and draining. And you can hear the entire story in very many details, which is actually what led to my engagement by listening to episode 53 of my podcast. But during this whole time, I decided to put my self-published book on hold simply because I couldn't feel any emotion at the time other than sadness. And that is definitely not the frame of mind you want to attempt to write a humorous self-help healthy eating book in. So even though I was really disappointed to be putting my book on hold, both because that would push everything back and also because I'm admittedly notorious for starting projects with gusto and then losing the gusto and not finishing the projects, I just had to let go and trust that when it was the right time for me to pick my book back up again, I would just intuitively know. And so I took a deep breath, released control, and chilled. And like I said, I trusted. I wrote an email to my book mentor on June 28th to tell her I was needing to be gentle with myself and give myself the space and time to write this book when it flowed again. Exactly a month later. No joke. Okay, two days less than an exact month later. On June 26th, my same lady friend from the place that rhymes with Schmarper Bollins reappeared in my inbox out of the complete blue with an email that made me question my sanity. <laughs> she wrote, hi, sorry for the long delay in getting back to you. I just wanted to check in and see if your blog slash social media has gotten more followers since the last time we spoke. Thanks. Sorry for the long delay in getting back to you? A 358 days delay? I don't know if there's an actual adjective out there that describes what I felt when I read this email, but I guess if gun to my head, I had to choose a word, I would say, I don't know, but please don't shoot me. Just insert the series of three monkeys with the hands over the eyes, ears, and mouth emojis, because that's how I felt, okay? Now get that gun away from my head now. So later that day, still on July 26, because after a 358-day delay from her, I figured I didn't need to do the whole let's play it cool and wait to respond till tomorrow game anymore. I wrote back that same day and I said, yes, I've definitely been growing. I started a podcast in November and it's been great. I now already have almost 15K Instagram followers and my engagement has been off the charts. My YouTube channel and newsletter have also been steadily growing and I'm doing more and more paid speaking events. Oh, and I would love to write a book. If you think this could be a possibility with the place that rhymes with Barbara Schmollins, let's please set up a time to speak. Thanks, with an exclamation point, because that's how I sign off most emails. Talia. Then I went on with my day expecting literally nothing, like literally no expectations. And note the difference here, okay? The last time we were in touch, I was energetically white knuckling our emails so tightly they passed out. I mean, I was refreshing and sweating and pacing and unable to think about anything else. I was just manic and petrified and anxious about what would come next. This time, I was chill as iced tea. The lovely beverage, not the show-stopping Law & Order SVU cop. Well, he's pretty chill too, honestly. In the face of all the crime, he keeps himself pretty level-headed. So I suppose I was a little like him too this time around. But the reason I'm pointing this out is because being chill and energetically not strangling people or situations is one of the biggest keys of all the keys to manifesting great shiz in your life. 
you have to identify what you want, which I did by saying, oh, and I would love to write a book. If you think this could be a possibility with that voice that rhymes the bar for Schmollins, let's please set up a time to speak. But then I had to be freaking patient and take a chill pill, which I did in this situation unintentionally, I might add. So the next day she says, awesome, love it. Are you free Thursday, August 3rd at 3 p.m. to come in and meet with myself and an editor? And I immediately wrote back, fuck yeah. Okay, no, I did not write that back. I wrote, absolutely, thanks. Is there anything I should prepare? I'll plan on bringing some book concepts I've already been brainstorming. Please let me know what else might be helpful. Thanks again. Really looking forward to meeting with you both. Is me reading these emails helping or detracting from the story? I can't really tell. I mean, in serial, they read things, but I don't know how important this is to my story. So let's just say that we set up a time to meet later that week, and I went into the spectacular New York City office on Thursday, August 3rd, 2017, carrying my tray of my black bean brownies, a lot of stuff printed out, many butterflies in my stomach, a river of sweat under each armpit, and I knocked the meeting out of the park. It could not have gone better. Truly, the editor loved my stuff. And she saw my book being a book that people gift to one another without the recipient feeling embarrassed because they were just gifted a health book. She flipped over my brownies. She LOL'd at my brainstormed ideas and then ended by saying, yeah, so I think it's just a question of timing. We'll be in touch. And we all hugged, which means my river of armpit sweat became public knowledge and I felt on top of the world. I literally played Imagine Dragons top of the world in my headphones on the subway home. Jesse and I had a celebratory meal at one of our favorite pasta spots that's impossible to get into, so we sat at the bar, shout out Lulia, and then we toasted to the notion that even if nothing comes out of this, the fact that this just happened was huge, and I should feel incredibly grateful and accomplished that this even happened. You hear that? Grateful. Appreciative. That's another key to manifesting epic shiz. You have to stop and smell the roses and be thankful for what you already have before you can get more roses to smell. I wrote a thank you note email the next day saying how fantastic it was meeting. Thank you so much. I look forward from hearing from you. In the meantime, I will work on growing my audience and thanks so much again. So Jesse and I had a trip scheduled for Montauk four days later, and while we drove there on Monday, August 7th, we blasted tunes and I just bathed in appreciation. Wow, that was so poetic, but whatevs, truth. A couple hours later, I got shockingly proposed to. Again, the full story about that is in episode 53, so I had a hell of a lot more appreciation to bask in. I got a response the next day via email saying, was so great to meet you as well. Still obsessed with the brownies. We'll be in touch. And I made a promise to myself and my brand spanking new fiance that I was going to wait a full month to follow up and hope during that month that I wouldn't even need to follow up because I'd get an email anyway. I also kept in mind the knowledge that I had heard that August is a desert in publishing, so I really didn't expect much traction. Not following up that full month was torture. I literally felt like an addict in a program that kept reaching out to my sponsors, aka Jesse and my best friend Eileen, to save me from writing my follow-up email. I would draft one and then delete it. I'd threaten to send another one and then I bailed. I mean, it was kind of absurd. But ultimately, I was able to wait until September 6th, one day short of exactly one month from our last email exchange on August 7th, to follow up. 
A week later on September 12th, my dad's birthday, unrelated, but happy birthday, dad. I was feeling a mixture of panic and stay calm, Talia, and trust. And oh my God, it's happening again because I hadn't heard anything again. So I followed up again. I quickly got a response on the same day. Phew. But all it said was, forgive me for the delay. It's just been a little crazy the past few weeks, but it will, of course, be in touch. Ugh. At this point, saying be in touch was basically the same thing as, well, I don't even have an analogy, but I knew it meant the opposite of what I wanted to be told. Okay, now I had had enough. I just couldn't stay lingering in this land of waiting to be touched or (laughs) in touched or whatever. I was struggling. I couldn't decide how to proceed in like any area of my life because I just felt like everything was unknown. I know that sounds dramatic, but I'm pretty dramatic. So yeah, welcome to my life. I didn't know how to manage my time. I didn't know what to prioritize. And most of all, I didn't know what like goals to set for the foreseeable future since I had gotten fully on board with the next step. I'm writing a book train, but like my train was just infinitely delayed and the conductor was just telling me he'd be in touch. So my bags were packed and I had my healthy train snacks packed, but I didn't know what to do with myself until it was time to roll into the sunset. I had to start coming to terms with the idea that my train might be canceled indefinitely, that this dream taunting me could never turn into anything. And I knew I just couldn't sit around in the train station waiting for a miracle. I had to like do something. So I thought about going back to the self-publishing thing and I picked a few mentors brains about doing it. Shout out to Sarah Adler, who self-published the gorgeous Simply Real Health cookbook, and Terry Walters, who originally self-published Clean Food, both for letting me pick your delicious and brilliant brains. But self-publishing a cookbook or a humor health book hybrid just didn't feel right in my gut. I had had a taste for the big, big dream of publishing a traditional mainstream book, and I was firm and certain that that's what I wanted. But I didn't think it was possible, since clearly... Um, I mean, at this point in the story, it's not really looking like it's possible, right? I knew the way one normally gets a traditional book deal is by first getting a literary agent. But I absolutely didn't think at all whatsoever that I could get a literary agent. I believe that that was for legit people, not people who randomly have a person at the place that rhymes with Barbara Schmollins just stumble upon you and get kind of lucky. An agent's going to want big numbers, more credentials, super popularity. Not me. That's all what I thought. But in a moment of desperation of getting unstuck, I said to Jesse, okay, I'm just going to try for the next month to get an agent. I'll never know if I don't try. And then if I can't get an agent, I'll know that I tried and I will just self-publish with no regrets. So I reached out to my friends who have written books, all of them former podcast guests, and I asked them in a professional, pretty pleased with the cherry on top kind of email, if they'd be so kind as to connect me with their literary agents, but absolutely no pressure. They all did. And all of their agents wanted to talk to me. I was in disbelief. I had seven calls with seven literary agents a week later and had the true honor of actually getting to choose the wonderful human with whom I wanted to team up with and try to bring my book baby into life. Now, mind you, each of these seven calls felt surreal. I mean, I was faking it till I made it to the max. Okay, I would put on a bra, which isn't my normal work from home under a tire, and I'd pace around my kitchen while taking these calls, trying to act as legit as I could. No clue what I was doing, but just fully surrendering that I would figure it out and be guided. Because what the heck else could I do? 
I settled on a perfect agent for me. Her name is Lindsay, and she's made Adina Grigori, a former podcast guest, two books, Skin Cleanse and Just the Essentials. She's made those a reality. Adina's books are both hilarious and informative and were exactly the types of books I dreamt to write. So I thought it only made sense to go with an agent who was attracted to that kind of writing. So the way that I even found out about Lindsay is I was reading the back of Adina's book. I was looking in her acknowledgments because in the acknowledgments, most authors shout out their agent, hint, hint, wink, wink. And I saw her name. She was like, thanks, my agent, Lindsay, blah, blah, blah. And I Googled her and I read her bio. And in her bio, she writes that she's really into a writer with a strong narrative, aka a unique voice, aka me. So as soon as I signed with Lindsay on October 26, 2017, I felt engulfed in gratitude. I just morphed into this incredibly blissful, grateful, majestic human. I'd listen to yoga music while I rested. I actually did more yoga. I felt confident, radiant, and just happy. And I let myself feel all those things. I didn't say this is too good to be true or this won't amount to anything. Don't get your hopes up. I just rode the high and trusted that the best possible outcome would come and that the universe or whatever energy is going on out there had my back. So Lindsay and I set out to improve the proposal that I'd already started and aimed to pitch my book proposal to editors in early January. At this point, the place that rhymes with Barbara Schmollins was in my rearview mirror. I still hadn't heard from them. So I just ruled them out. Like, that was weird. But hey, I'm so thankful for that experience because it led me to have the courage to try to get an agent, to try to get my book deal, and also gave me a little credibility to boost and help me get said agent. The last I had heard from them was October 11th uh, when I had gotten another, so sorry, haven't forgotten about you, be in touch soon email. On November 2nd, I was taking the subway to do an errand at a camera store and then meet an Instagram gal pal for dinner. And while sitting on the subway right before it left the station, I refreshed my email. Just as we started moving into no cell service zone, I saw an email come in from a person with a different first name at the same place that arrives at Barbara Schmollins, and I immediately opened it. While it was only like 10 sentences, I skimmed it fast looking for keywords that would give me a clue as to whether this was good news or bad news or if the phrase be in touch was anywhere to be found. It wasn't. Instead, social media platform needs to grow. While you do have a hilarious take, need to see growth on your Instagram, Facebook, etc. Those were all the clues I needed to start crying right then and there on the subway. I kept it a mild cry while on the train, like a casual, maybe she just yawned or did something weird with her contact and some tears came out kind of thing. But the moment those doors opened, I went into a corner near the stairs on the 6th Ave and 14th Street stop and sobbed so hard. I'm genuinely shocked nobody asked me if I was okay. I called Jesse like unable to speak. I was crying so hard. After I almost drowned my phone, I took a deep breath and had to proceed with my evening plans somehow. As I was walking, I actually had a moment where I thought to myself, wow, this is that scene in a movie where the worst happens and then the main character and Hathaway or something, I guess I was thinking Devil Wears Prada, even though I haven't seen that since like high school. So I don't even know if it's a good parallel here, but she has to wipe off her smudge mascara, pick herself up and prove everyone wrong. And then I got fired up to prove that one can get a mainstream book deal without having 100,000 followers. If you haven't noticed, followers and platform numbers are my Achilles heel. 
I think they are for most people because for things like brand partnerships, book deals, getting press, feeling validation, you need big numbers. People give far more weight to numbers in this day and age than anything. Although that's changing and engagement is becoming more and more sexy to these kinds of folks. Thankfully, that is the case because I was able to use my super high engagement rates, which means how many awesome, amazing humans like yourself actually comment, like, and engage with me directly on social media, which I love. Thank you so much. But the word followers and platform are literally my biggest triggers of insecurity in my business. And so for those to be the words used to say my book was a no-go was just like throwing my heart in a blender and making a nice bread beet smoothie with it. I just kept yelling to Jesse on the phone, I'd rather them turn me down based on talent than numbers. Although that actually couldn't be farther from the truth, but at the time it felt true. I was able to not act like a crybaby when I told my agent, Lindsay, about this email. She was as cool as a cucumber about it. She said it was no big deal and that the editor I had met with is notorious for only publishing books but whose authors have massive followings and that we'd find a perfect publisher for me. If we hadn't been having that conversation over email, I swear I would have kissed her feet. So I'm very glad we had that conversation over email. I think part of me felt relieved that I was done being strung along for all that time. I mean, remember, this was November 2nd, 2017. The journey began on June 18th, 2016. That's 502 days or one year, four months and 15 days where I was on the edge of my seat, hoping that every time I opened my email, which is what? three to five times a day if I'm lying because I obviously open my email way more times than that each day. But hoping that every time my dream, we want to publish your book, email would just be sitting in there. I felt like the cord was chopped and I could stop wondering what if and go make magic happen. And now I had haters, quote unquote, to prove wrong, even though I know they weren't haters and their email was like super nice and complimentary. And they said definitely be in touch as my platform grew. But like I needed that haters mentality to light my flame, you know? (laughs) Okay, so here's where the eye of the tiger music should be playing if we were allowed to play it without getting flagged for copyright issues. I worked on my proposal for the next couple of months. It's a 43-page document that I designed meticulously by pretending to myself that I'm a meticulous designer. In case you're wondering, because I'd be wondering if I were listening, my book proposal had a cover page, a three-page overview about me as a human, of my book as a specific and very clear idea, and my readers, whom both me as a human and my specific book are trying to help. Then I had a page with my professional bio slash resume, the press I've been featured in, my numbers on social media platforms, a couple brags about my awesome engagement, related book titles that are similar to the book I want to write just to show them that similar ideas and vibes to mine have been sold before so they wouldn't have to feel like they're taking a huge gamble on my idea. Then I had four pages with marketing and promotional ideas, everything from people I know who could help get the word out when the word is ready to come out, to IRL event ideas, to social media ideas, and so many things in between. And then I had a 12-page ultra-clear table of contents and 16 pages or 6,000 words of sample content, aka I already written my intro material to my book. Yeah, it was a monster, a plant 
partying monster. But it gave me a real sense of confidence and trust that this was the thing I was meant to do because as soon as I would go to a coffee shop that played the best pop tunes like old school in sync, the words would just fly out from my fingers as I typed, which led to a feeling of total jubilation and exhilaration as well as a million bajillion typos. But that feeling of total jubilation and exhilaration, in my opinion, is a sign that you're on the right track. Maybe not the right key, but the right track. And that just helped me feel so much more confident that the right outcome would have to occur. It would just have to occur if I was on the right track. Just have to. So anyway, between the holidays and some trips or whatever, Lindsay ended up sending our pitches and proposal to 30 editors on February 7th, 2018. Seven is my lucky number, so that's pretty cool. During all that time, I would visualize myself being a writer. I printed out photos of beautiful, colorful, fun book stacks that I wanted my book to one day be stacked on top of. I literally would close my eyes and imagine what my life would look like as a writer. I tidied up my office, and I'd walk around bookstores fantasizing about what it would feel like to have mine there. This is another key to manifesting, okay? Thinking as if visualizing, seeing exactly what you want in your mind like you already have it. And not even just seeing it, feeling it. When I'd exercise, I'd feel what it would feel like to have a book deal and an editor to report to and words to write and recipes to create. I would feel it. And I'd also feel sweaty because I was working out. So after Lindsay sent my proposal attached to a pitch email and followed up with a phone call to each editor, she told me to expect it to take like two to three weeks for editors to read it and discuss it with their editorial meetings. And she said, we may hear faster than that, but it's not bad if we don't hear right away because editors need to get a lot of reads from other people before they can ask for a phone call. And she said she'd let me know as soon as she had any interest and then she would push for meetings or phone calls with any interested editors. So I geared up for a peaceful waiting period, this time knowing there was no possibility of an I'll be in touch situation because either an editor would be a yay or a nay almost right away. And I just fully trusted that the best possible outcome was right around the corner. It just had to be. So I just let go, drank a smoothie, worked on my podcast, and settled into a state of calmly busy. An hour and 14 minutes later, after those email pitches went out, Lindsay emails me saying an editor already responded immediately, saying my proposal brought a smile to her face in the middle of a really tough day and wanted to set up a call. So much for that two to three week waiting period I just settled into. In the days following this, other emails came in asking to set up meetings. We had our first one on February 13th and then eight more between then and February 26th. The meetings, all of which took place on the phone, basically required me to turn my party and passion on full force. Many of the editors I spoke to asked me to explain who I am and how I got to the place of wanting to write this book right now. They asked me what my goals were for the book, what I envisioned it looking like. Some editors had really detailed questions about how I would specifically promote my hypothetical book. One even asked me this serious question, what would you do if your book didn't sell? To which I answered confidently that that wouldn't happen because I would hustle to sell it. Duh. Then the editors talked about their publishing houses and what they envisioned for the book and why they were interested in talking to me about it and potentially publishing it. That was my favorite part. (laughs) During each call, I would energetically pace around my kitchen, same place as I paced when I had my iconic call with the place that rhymes with Barbara Schmollins. And after each call, I'd lie down and recap with Lindsay and my notebook privately. 
Lindsay on the phone, my notebook in my lap while I was lying down. One particular day, okay, not particular, it was Wednesday, February 22, 222. Aren't numbers in a sequence supposed to mean magic or something? I really need to talk to a numerologist or astrologist. But on this Wednesday, 222, I had three long meetings in one day and I was P to the ooped. When you're amped to the max and pacing around your apartment, one call feels like three hours of a flywheel class, let me tell you. Except you're not hoping to gain some serious sweat marks at the end of it. You're actually hoping to gain a life-changing book deal. Yeah, no big deal. At the end of that day, my last call I had with an editor at a publishing company that rhymes with Kenguin. Okay, now that one's too obvious. Schmenguin? Penguin. Okay, now I've just basically said it. Okay, oh, penguin. <laughs> it was with a gal named Nina, which is my sister's name as well. Is there a nameologist that can tell me if that's a positive omen? And Nina and I had the best call. She didn't grill me about marketing strategies or ask for my numbers. She gave me feedback on actual content I'd written, like an actual editor would do. She was warm, funny, flattering, kind, and I just got butterflies when we spoke. I ended that call and immediately said to Lindsay, best call so far, hands down. That night, Jesse and I went out to dinner and I told him point blank, I want to work with Nina. I hope I get to work with Nina at the place that rhymes with, I mean, just with Penguin. I can say it. (laughs) I mean, even though it felt crazy to say because I mean, Penguin, I just calmly said it. I hope I get a deal with Nina and Avery. Avery is the imprint of Penguin that she's an editor for. An imprint is like a little, like if Penguin's the umbrella, the imprint's like, I guess, a handle off the umbrella or if there were many handles under the umbrella. Uh, I guess if you turn an umbrella upside down, Penguin would be the handle and then an imprint like Avery would be like one of the poofs of the umbrella. Anyway, I trusted that if it was meant to be, it would happen. But I would take anything else with gratitude. And like I said, if it was meant to be, but I I would really like to work with Nina at Penguin. And then we dove into our wine and pasta and salads. And I probably said it a thousand more times that night, but not in a needy way. In a, wouldn't it be really nice if that happened kind of way. I went home and walked around my kitchen looking at bindings of books on my shelves, and I realized that many of my top favorite cookbooks were published by Avery, and I talked myself out of the thought of, oh no, my book can never join these folks. They're legends. I truly turned the dial on my head and didn't even really allow that thought to like be a full thought, even though I knew I was having that thought, if that makes sense whatsoever. So life went on and we had some more calls scheduled for later that week and early next. I promise I'm almost done here. The plan was to follow up with anyone we hadn't heard from yet so we could have calls with everyone interested and then go to auction. Our final call was on Tuesday, February 27th, and Lindsay said that after that call, she was going to tell everyone still interested, and this is how the auction works, at least in my case, and she would tell them that by the following Monday, March 5th, she needed their best and final offers. And I was just supposed to keep myself as busy as possible and as relaxed as possible. Those weren't Lindsay's orders, but my own. I literally put pray in my calendar from Monday, March 5th. (laughs) Like that was what I was supposed to do that day. The final calls were great. And those editors were my two other faves of the whole bunch. So I felt like there were three editors I would be really, really, really happy to work with. Although I knew that Nina and Avery would be definitely my numero uno. On Tuesday afternoon, Lindsay said that one more editor wanted a meeting for the following morning, last minute thing. So we'd be pushing back the auction deadline to Tuesday and was already letting all the editors know about it. 
I was just so used to rolling with the tide here, so it wasn't no thing. That evening, I was winding down from the day, watching a little Jim and Pam and Michael Scott witty banter on the telly, when I got an email from Lindsay at 5.51 p.m. with the subject title, Offer, and the body of the email read, Talia, good news. I have an offer from Avery to bring you. Could I call you in about 40 mins? I think I was just so used to not getting overly emotional about anything regarding the book, or at least consciously controlling myself so I didn't get overly emotional about anything regarding the book. So I just remember looking at this message and being like, hey, Jesse, read this, as if I had found a semi-interesting article about sea turtles in a magazine I was reading. So Jesse reads it and starts panicking. I laugh it off like it must be a mistake or something weird. Our auction isn't until Tuesday. And keep in mind, listener, not Jesse, well, Jesse too, it's only Wednesday at this point in the story. I somehow managed to put Michael Scott back on the TV for the next 40 minutes as I tell Jesse, if it was good news, Lindsay would have used an exclamation point or a smiley or something other than a period in the email. And then I went back through all of Lindsay's emails to prove to Jesse that she does often use exclamation points and smileys. So if this was an exclamation point or a smiley kind of situation, she most definitely would have used it here. So I definitely shouldn't get too excited and he should just pump the brakes a little bit. At minute 41 from when she sent that email, I started to get a little antsy in my pantsy. Lots of antsies happening in my pantsies. I started to pace around. I started breathing. I chugged some kombucha. At like minute 47, Lindsay calls me and says, hi, Talia. I said, hey, Lindsay. She said, sorry I teased you like that. I was running onto the subway and I just got off. And I said, no problem. What's up? She said, so when I told Nina at Avery today that we're going to auction on Tuesday, she asked me what she could offer for the book to not go to auction. I don't remember if I said anything or if I just made a noise or there was an awkward pause because maybe I just made a silent facial expression. And I told her X dollars. Lindsay said that. And at this point, let's just say that X dollars was literally five dollars times what I thought I could get as an advance. So I almost passed out, but casually said, oh, wow, (laughs) what did she say? Lindsay said she countered with X dollars, which was still three times the amount I ever thought I could get as an advance. And I said, seriously? And Lindsay said, seriously, but I want to go back tomorrow and counter again with X amount, which was 4.28 times the amount I thought I could get as an advance. And then she said, what do you think? And what I was actually thinking was, are we sure today is an April Fool's? But what I said was, oh my God, is this for real? To which she said, yeah, this is for real. I do love how Lindsay's even keelness balances out whatever sailing term is the opposite of Ealing keelness, which is what I am. And then I said something like, I'm just shocked because you didn't use an exclamation point in your email. I wish I was kidding about telling you I said that to her, but I'm 100% serious. And she said, ha ha, I know I was running on the subway and just wanted to get to you quickly. And then Jesse nudged me and mouth, are you kidding? And I said, I'm sorry. I'm just truly speechless. This is amazing and beyond a dream come true. And I actually can't believe it. Yes, of course. I want to take this deal. So what do we do now? And she said that she would counter with that 4.28 times the amount I thought I could ever get as an advance the next day and see what could happen. 
And then I thanked her and went to get by Chloe takeout because what else do you eat when you're in utter shock and disbelief other than baked sweet potato fries, a veggie burger, a vegan gluten-free mac and cheese with a damn chocolate chip cookie because damn right, I deserved a damn chocolate chip cookie. So I don't need to bore you with the rest of the details here, but the next morning we found the middle point between both of our counter offers and I told Lindsay it was a done deal and we canceled the final call with a different editor we had that next morning. Apparently at this point I had a book deal. It didn't feel real, but at the same time it felt like the realest, not realest thing I felt other than when Jesse and I got engaged. Similar to that, it was one of those, wait, I thought that's what grown-ups do kind of situations. You know, like you picture that one day, someday, maybe this dream of mine, finding a life partner or writing something that lives in Barnes and Noble. Okay, hopefully it doesn't live there because that would mean it's not selling because just be on the shelf, but cruises through Barnes and Noble. And then, you know, one day, someday that thing comes to you and you're like, wait, really? Now is one day, someday? I think I just like ghost walked through the rest of that Wednesday. Actually, looking at my calendar was the opposite of what I did. I actually had two podcast interviews that day, which is the opposite of ghost walking. And what even is ghost walking anyway? I think I just meant sleepwalking. Thursday, Lindsay told me that the night prior, she had made my Teff chocolate chip cookies in celebration. I had brought some into her office the first time we met. She loved them. But she used Teff like the loose grain, not Teff flour, and they spread out like two giant cookie cakes. And she said they were so delicious, and everyone at the office ate them up, and I was really happy to hear that. Just a fun little anecdote for you. The next day, Friday, Jesse and I went out for a celebratory plant party meal at my fave plant party restaurant. You know what it is. Let me hear it. Say it with me now. ABC Kitchen. And then Tuesday, March 6th, my original auction date, I got to meet with Lindsay and Nina to talk about the book. Although we mostly just talked about their recent weddings and my upcoming one. And I got to tour the penguin offices so I could make sure this wasn't some catfishing prank. It wasn't a catfishing prank. And that's the story of how I got my book deal. And now I have to write a book, which in hindsight is a whole lot scarier than potentially getting my book proposal rejected because now I'm contractually and financially obligated to create something pretty good. So I should probably get to that now, but I'll leave you with this. The six truths I learned from this woo-woo and woo-hoo with some boo-hoo winding journey. One, get crystal clear on your dreams and what you love and what you want and then get quiet. Every single one of my actions came after I got a pang of an idea in my gut and then my head. Like when it just hit me that if I wanted to speak more, the speakers I admired have books, so I should write a book. Or when it just dawned on me that I already knew a writing coach and I should work with her. Or when I decided that I should just at least try to get an agent because I had nothing to lose at that point. You know, I got a clear hit on what I wanted, but I really tried to let ideas, helpful people, and whatever, you know, come to me. And to this point, showers are a beautiful thing, as are notepads next to them for when you get your wet strokes of geniusness. Number two truth that I learned from this woohoo and woo-woo winding journey is Feel the feeling of what it feels like if you had the dream. 
I really believe that thinking of myself as a person with a book deal, mentally putting myself in the shoes of an author, imagining my book being added to the hundreds of books on my shelves, visualizing what it would be like to be surrounded by four different types of beverages and snacks, typing away at my computer, like Jack Nicholson and The Shining, but without all the murders and ghosts and snow, all of that really helped me stay connected to my desire. And I think that was incredibly important and effective. Three, as my favorite quote from A Course in Miracles that I learned through the great Gabby Bernstein says, those who are certain of the outcome can afford to wait and wait without anxiety. I have this posted on my office wall and stuck in my head at all times. Those who are certain of the outcome can afford to wait and wait without anxiety. I somehow had the utmost unwavering faith and trust that the best possible outcome would come for me and my book. I just somehow intuitively knew that this was not a white knuckling situation. I think I knew that because in the past, every single thing I've ever white knuckled has gone to shit. So since I didn't want this to go to shit, I had to do things differently. And because as they say, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. And I'm might love to do the program Insanity, but I'm not insane myself. Four, and my tied for favorite quote of all time is, be so good they can't ignore you. Thank you, Steve Martin. Be so good they can't ignore you. Screw numbers. Don't let them bring you down or boast you up, really. Just focus on being so damn good they can't ignore you, and then they won't be able to ignore you. Number five, pretend. You know, most of my story involves me saying yes to things I was terrified to do, but figuring them out anyway and just pretending I was cool, calm, and confident when really I was kind of freaking out and not even wearing a bra. So this is a double lesson, I suppose. You can achieve cool things without wearing bras. And number six, which is the lamest, most cliche lesson I could ever share, but whatevs. It's true, man. I didn't give up. That's the thing. Don't give up. I Anne Hathawayed myself from that sobbing subway station session to a dream book deal. I guess the reason don't give up is such a cliche is that everyone who actually ever achieved anything says it was a key to their success. And I guess that's because it's an actual key to success. So yeah, you know, whatever you want to do or be or eat, don't give up. Thanks so much for listening to the Party in My Plants podcast. I am so appreciative of your ears not giving up on streaming my story. And I am so excited for you to not give up on your big dreams. But do give up on any white knuckling, okay? I promise you that white knuckling your dreams is like holding a golf club. The more you grip, the actually worse your swing is and the more blisters you get. So just hold it lightly, as my dad, a kind of golf pro, has always said to me, but to which I've never listened. And maybe that's why I hate and suck at golf. If you can think of another human for whom any of this stuff, including that freebie golf tip, you're welcome, would strike a chord, please, please share this episode with them. And for some photos of some of the stuff mentioned in this story, plus info about how you can follow and get involved with my book creation process, head to partyinmyplants.com slash bookstory. That's partyinmyplants.com slash bookstory. One word. Well, it's not one word, but there's no space. Book story. 
book story. And I gotta say it, thank you in advance for buying my book when it's out.